Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warning. The following podcast contains an entertaining look at astronomy, physics, and space news throughout the known universe. Listeners have been known to learn about astronomical phenomenon, the scientific method, and expand their vocabulary to include terms like quasar, asterism, and Uranus. Listen at your own risk. Go ahead. We're made of stars, made of stars, made of stars. We're made of stars, we really are. You could be from Hollywood. New Mexico or Mars We're all made of stars We're made of stars We are made of stars Joined by my good friend Dr. Sean Cruzen From Columbus State University's Coca-Cola Space Science Center I'm Wes Carroll Morning, Sean Good morning, Wes. Good to be here today. We realized as we wrapped the show last week, we had a bit of a hanging chad. Just one of the, you know, for people that remember uh, that particular election uh, 20-something years ago. Uh, we just, we, we had one little thing we were going to circle back to, and then we never did on the show. So uh, while we don't have a definitive answer yet, um, but we were discussing last week about the, the uh, amount of time that we have had uh, astronauts orbiting the earth consecutively and i asked the question uh, can we find out for certain if there's always been an american on board we believe that to be the case although the old google machine doesn't give us a definitive answer does it you know what's funny is that we we all have different sources of truth yeah in 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 2023 compared to when as you said you know 20 years ago and and you know Google's one of those, right? Like if yep. I can't Google it and find it, I'm just lost. What do I do next? There used to be these things called books. We used to look things up in books, encyclopedias. You know, those are hard to find now. So, uh, so yeah. So I deferred the question to our space historian, Mr. Scott Norman here at Space Science Center, and Scott gave me his definitive answer of, I, I can't ever remember a time. Which is far from definitive. So if I was going to publish a research paper on this, I would say, yeah, we still maybe need to do some more research. But, you know, we're a podcast, so we can get away with saying all manner of things, right? It's true. So we're going to say this. We are not aware of a time that, um, that, the, that we left the Russians up there like a bunch of frat boys to run the space station by themselves. Yes. I just can't ever remember a time, and neither could Scott. And so I believe that there was never a time where we didn't have Americans on board the ISS with the Russians just doing kind of like, you know, like dorm room supervision, you know, kind of like that whole business. So, so anyway, we're going to go with that answer. Now, listeners, this is where you get to participate. It's fun. Go ahead. Send Wes an email. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. Say that cruising guy's a nut. He's wrong. He, he didn't look in a book. I blew the dust off this book on my bookshelf 
And it said the one time when Russians were solely in charge of the ISS. I don't think that happened, but go ahead. If you find that, you know, let us know. But I'm going to go ahead and say, until I hear that, there's never been a time where we didn't have Americans on board ISS. So you say we're a podcast and therefore we can say, you know, certain things. Uh, we do try to keep things as accurate as possible, although on the occasion that we misspeak, on the occasion that we might uh, leave out a word, God knows I've done that before, um, that, that certainly helps to to clarify the statement I was trying to make. Sometimes you need that one word before the second word to make the word mean what you want it to mean, um, which I, I can think of a very specific incident. I did that once. <laughs> Um, sadly, and I'll never forget it. It's the, you always remember I played sports, you know, high school as an adult. I remember every goal I missed. I can just tell you that. I don't remember all the, I don't, I don't remember all the goals I scored. I remember every single one I missed. Um, however, which was a lot, sadly, uh, would be easier to remember the ones I made. Uh, but we try to keep it accurate. We try to do that. And what we can just say, and I feel very comfortable because this was the other qualifier that we had last week uh, after we realized we forgot to circle back, was that uh, we don't remember a time when there wasn't an American on board. And if it did happen, it probably happened very early in the process. It would have probably been in the first few years. So I feel like if someone does come back and say, hey, 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 this is when it happened, it would probably be somewhere. I mean, I feel like if we say in the first five years, that's probably when it might have happened, uh, if it happened at all. Is that, is, do you think that's a fair way to put it? I think it's a very fair way to put it. And I, I think the statement that we made is highly accurate, which is, I don't remember a time. Yes, that's 100% accurate. <laughs> I do not remember a time either. <laughs> yes. So I can neither confirm nor deny, but I don't remember. I personally do not remember time. And, you know, my memory, I mean, my memory shouldn't be really trusted that much anyway. So I try to just defer to facts and other sources yeah. as many times as I can on this show, because like you, I have a high ethical standard and want to keep this baby accurate. Yeah. But I did go check with our space historian as well, who came up with the same answer as me, which is he can never remember a time. So there's two of us. Or, you know, employed in this industry that can neither one of us remember a time. And I'm going to go with it. I'm going to stick with that. That sounds very good until we're proven otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they can't prove, they can't prove that I can't remember it. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just say I pretty much can't remember yes. a time. That's a, that's a verifiable fact. I can't. I don't trust <laughs> my memory either. I don't even remember what we're talking about. Uh, let's jump into, uh, this James Webb story. We have another, and, and it seems this is pretty right. I do remember the fact that we've had uh, a number of wins for James Webb since this thing was launched. I think since they dropped it and it wasn't broken, uh, it's had a bunch of wins since then. I think that's the best way to view it. Even the drop turn, it, it wasn't really a, a loss there because nothing really happened to it other than delayed the launch. But since it's been in place and working, uh, win after win after win, and uh, this is a pretty cool story we have this morning about the origins of how the Earth was formed. Yeah, and before we get into that, I would just say, you know, I did compare the Russians to a bunch of frat boys, but don't even get me started on the James Webb Space Telescope scientists, <laughs> because those people, have you seen them at the American Astronomical Society conferences? Oh, man, that's that's one rowdy group. Anyway, L Lampshade so on their head and all, right? I mean, if they can find one at the organic coffee shop, if they can find one there, they're going to put it on their head. So anyway, JWST, ladies and gentlemen, James Webb Space Telescope has made another really important discovery 
that supports a long-standing theory about the way that we think planets are created around not only other stars, but in the past they were created around our own sun as well. Let me give you a rundown on that. So, so there's something called solar nebula theory that basically describes a, an evolutionary process by which the sun itself formed by pulling in hot gas and dust out of a hot gas and dust cloud. And, and, and hot's a relative term. So it was hot on the inside where that, where the, where that proto-sun was forming. But then in the outer reaches of the same disk of material, little dust grains were bumping into each other. And if, and if they were far enough away from that proto-sun, they likely were coated with the ices of various volatile compounds, such as water, yes, but also things like methane, ammonia, and other uh, substances that are volatile compounds that we find throughout our solar system. So these, if you've ever been out where it's really snowed, uh, a kind of a wet snow, not really a dry snow, but kind of a wet snow, you'll know that wet snows are better for making snowmen and snowballs because the wet snow sticks together. So imagine within this disk of material, little dust particles coated with ice bumping into one another, kind of like one wet snowball bumping into another wet snowball, and they stick together. That process is labeled with a word that we call accretion. So accretion is the process of these little frozen particles bumping together and sticking together to make a bigger particle. And then those bigger particles bump together and stick to stick together to make even bigger particles than that. So after enough time, you have stuck enough particles together that then their gravitational influence begins to be important. And they start to pull in other dust and gases via their gravity. So the formation of planets in early solar systems is kind of a two-step process. First accretion and then later gravitation. Okay, that's kind of a, just a cartoon level view. So here's what JWST found. JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, was looking at a, several disks of material forming around other very young stars. And in particular, the two more compact disks of the four that they examined, which were the two more evolutionarily mature, they, they've been collapsing longer, those two disks had a distinct ring of steam. Now it's cold steam, but it's vaporous water, H2O, coming up out of a place that they refer to in a forming solar system as the snow line. Okay, what's the snow line? Imagine traveling outward from the star in the center of the disk. And of course it's hot near the, the star or the protostar, but the farther you get away from that campfire, the colder it gets. Well, eventually it gets so cold that things begin to freeze. That's what the snow line is in a galaxy, or I'm sorry, in a, in a solar system, a forming solar system. So therefore, in this forming solar system, you have the snow line. Well, when JWST astronomers were examining their data, they found in the disks of a couple of compact uh, star-forming regions or uh, solar systems in formation, they found inside the snow line a ring of steam. All right. How does that either confirm or deny the idea of how planets form? Well, here's how it does. Because there's thought to be a process called 
pebble infall, where these frozen pebbles that have stuck together via accretion tend to migrate toward the inner part of the parent solar system. And if that's true, it's necessarily true to form planets on the inside. So if that's true, there would be a point where they crossed the snow line and things got too warm for them to hold on to their watery or otherwise volatile sticky materials, and suddenly you would have a ring of steam. Well, that's that's a theoretical idea, but friends, the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope team, actually was able to identify that very feature in two real solar systems in the process of form, forming. So when you have a whole theoretical construct and you come up with consequences, consequences that should exist if your idea is correct, and then you go out and actually find those things in, in reality, it's like a giant green light saying, yes, you were right. Here is the, the result of, uh, of your correct ideas. And you can see it on display in an actual physical system out there in the Milky Way. It's pretty darn cool. And so that's what they found. Uh, Andrea Benzati of Texas State University was one of the lead authors on the study, had this quote. The web results finally revealed the connection between water vapor in the inner disk of the solar system and the drift of icy pebbles from the outer disk. So there's finally now this physical connection. Hopefully I explained it well enough that you can kind of follow along. But this is a giant high five not only for these observational astronomers, but for all the theoretical astronomers that work to say, hey, one of the things we should look for if we're correct is this ring of cold water steam just inside the snow line of the forming solar systems. And lo and behold, there it was. Fantastic uh, example of how science works. Amazing win for the folks working with the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, this seems like an appropriate spot, even though they're not paying us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it just seems like a good spot from a pop culture standpoint to mention Ghostbusters Frozen Empire. The new trailer has dropped. Coming to theaters <laughs> yep. March 29th. I mean, they're not paying us. We're not showing any. I'm just pointing out from a pop culture standpoint the trailer is out, and uh, some of these very things seem to be taking place in the trailer. It's it's a pretty looks pretty good. I mean, it's probably happening just outside the snow line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean that would be it. You know, yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> no, you take it. Take it from me, Wes. Go. No, no, that's good. Let's talk about uh, the uh, uh, Starship because we've been following the saga that is the Starship. It it blew up the launch pad. Just with sheer force, sheer power alone blew up the launch pad. And when uh, Elon Musk said, we hope we don't blow up the launch pad, we thought he meant the rocket explode there. No, 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 no. It was just the actual propulsion that blew up the launch pad. It's been an ongoing saga to try to figure out when are we going to be able to do another test launch on this thing. Uh, they've been going through things with the uh, FAA, with the uh, environmental uh, folks, Every time we seem to get like a little more information about when they might launch it, this is just my impression. We get told uh, it may be uh, this date and then Elon or someone at SpaceX, I'm just going to blame Elon, but uh, someone there says, no, 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 maybe this date, which is much closer. Uh, and then uh, somebody comes in and says, hey, not so fast. Uh, that seems to have happened now a couple of times. Well, maybe it could happen this month and maybe it could happen really in a few days, according to them. Yes. So. The important part of this story, Wes, you did a fantastic job 
explaining why there was a giant mess down there in Boca Chica, Texas. You know, SpaceX just basically made a giant mess out of a very large area by trying to launch way too big a rocket without a sound suppression system or acoustic suppression system, which is what the big water towers do at the Kennedy Space Center when they flood the launch pads. All right. So, so because of that, the FAA got involved, as you said, but then also the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service got involved because apparently there were there was enough environmental damage caused by this event that fish and wildlife were both put at risk. And turns out that they're not really in any hurry to get their final report done so that SpaceX can launch. Uh, about you know the, the report is on the mitigation. Uh, techniques that SpaceX will employ to never, ever do that again. It's like, you know, going to the board and saying, I'm going to write 500 times, I will never blow up my launch pad again. I will never blow up my launch pad again. It's kind of, so they had to, they had to do a lot of mitigation to the actual systems to try to see if they could prevent a similar event from taking place. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is obligated to review those modifications, but at no given pace. Right, so they're they're they have many many days. They don't they don't have to get it approved by mid November. All right. In the meantime, just a few days ago, and we reported that about this on the podcast, Bill Gerstenmeyer, who now represents SpaceX but is a longtime NASA uh, headliner, shall we say, testified in front of Congress that the government bureaucracies were keeping the commercial space companies down. They were slowing things down way too much. And the exact example he was using was. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service holding up SpaceX's uh, Starship from launching. So, so Gersty was up there testifying on Capitol Hill. Well, Gersty gets back to SpaceX, and guess what? SpaceX puts out uh, a message on their website, maybe on a platform form- formerly known as Twitter, that might also have X in the title. Anyway, so so they put out a message there saying, "Hey, we're ready to go as soon as November 13th." Well, they're talking from an engineering standpoint and they're talking about the modifications that they've made and reported to the U.S. government. But until the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service clears them, they can't launch. However, these statements may be meant to apply a little extra political pressure after the Gerstenmeyer testimonies up on Capitol Hill to try to get the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to speed up their reporting and clear them for launch within, as you said, something less than a week now from when we're recording this this podcast. So so it's it's a very short time. Will it happen or is this just another ploy? It's a really interesting question. If you want to read more about the story, there's a great article on spaceflightnow.com. Uh, go check it out at spaceflightnow.com. But uh, again, according to SpaceX representatives, SpaceX is ready to go with its Starship launch and all the modifications therein as soon as November 13th. All right, another SpaceX story, As uh, and I guess for the folks in Ireland, it would be Aaron go to space uh, as SpaceX prepares to launch Ireland's first ever satellite this month. Yeah, so there's a, a satellite that was built. It's, it's a great story because it's a student-led satellite. Uh, it's, it's a CubeSat, which means it's a microsatellite or a small satellite. Um, it's... It's a gamma ray observatory. It's a little tiny, you know, the size of your laptop, roughly gamma ray observatory. 
and it was built by the Irish Educational Research uh, Group at the University College at Dublin, which is great. The name of the satellite is the Educational Irish Research Satellite 1, or as you pronounced a moment ago, IRSAT 1, IRSAT 1. Yeah. Uh, it's, it could be EARSAT. I don't know. I think it's IRSAT. But anyway, I'm not going to argue that. I would go Ire. I think it's, you know, when they spell Ireland in like the Olympics, I think they put the E in there, don't they? So that's, that would be, uh, yeah, E-I-R-Sat, sure. Ireland. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it seems Gaelic. It seems like a Gaelic thing to do. So, all right. So Ire-Sat one, uh, as part of the European Space Agency's Academy, which, which is called Fly Your Satellite, F-Y-S, the Fly Your Satellite Program, sponsored by ESA. So it's kind of a cool thing, right? Imagine a bunch of students in a relatively small college that get to be involved in a European space agency program where they construct and build their own gamma ray observatory. That's a microsat, and they get to fly it aboard a SpaceX Falcon and rocket. So that's the whole thing that's taking place. It's unfolding. Not only is this little CubeSat built by the, the Irish students, not only is it a gamma ray observatory, it's also got a couple of other really interesting tests that it's going to do. The main payload is gamma ray, a gamma ray module, but it also has uh, a couple of other important tests aboard. They're going to test to see whether a new oxide thermal coating can protect the satellite uh, from the space environment, which is kind of a neat thing. And then they have something else called wave-based control. Wave-based control. So I had to look this term up, make sure I understood what it was, but it's basically this. The satellite has maybe not the same number of retro rockets that you would have on a full-sized satellite for being able to spin it and turn it and doing all the kind of maneuvers that you would want to do in space. So they figured out another way to move this little satellite around, which is simply this. They get the fuel sloshing. They slosh the fuel on the inside of this CubeSat at a certain rate which corresponds to a resonance within the rocket itself. So it's kind of like this. If you've ever been on a swing and you know how to kick your feet to get yourself swinging without touching the ground, right? And you, you kind of build a rhythm of kicking your feet out and pulling on the chains, but you're never really touching the earth. You're, you're performing an internal resonance to get your swing moving back and forth and back and forth without ever touching the ground. Well, this is sort of like the internal spacecraft uh, version of that. They're getting their fuel to slosh in and out, in and out, with inside the, the vehicle, which can actually begin to cause the vehicle, when paired with the other thrusters, to move in certain orientations. And so, so this is a really cool new way to maneuver a satellite in space without having to put an extra rocket thruster aboard. You're able to do it with the internal mechanics of the device itself. And so this is a really cool test beyond, yes, measuring gamma ray bursts from space, which is great. Beyond, yes, testing new uh, protective oxide thermal coatings. They can also test this new way to actually move a rocket around. It's a proof of concept, but if they if they show it to be valid, they may be able to start incorporating it on other small satellites which lowers the cost of them because they don't have to add on new rocket engines. So way to go, IRSAT-1. For Ireland's first ever satellite to space and a test of a really cool control system on board. 
we hope them, we wish them the very best and hope them uh, for them the best of success. Uh, coming up after a quick break, an update on Ingenuity. Yes, it's still flying. And we'll talk about Supernova 1987 right after this. So the uh, lifespan for NASA's Ingenuity helicopter has uh, far surpassed what they expected, which is great, uh, especially considering it's uh, preparing for uh, something significant on Mars. Yeah, so they thought, hey, let's stick this little helicopter on the Perseverance rover, and it's small enough that it could just drop right out under, <laughs> under the rover as if the rover was giving birth on the red planet. And then we'll, we'll leave it there until the rover drives off, but then we'll deploy these little blades and it's like a little CubeSat itself. It's a little, got a little cubic uh, fuselage basically for lack of a better term. And, and maybe this thing, maybe we can actually fly it in the Martian atmosphere. Maybe once, you know, get a cool video of, of perseverance. Maybe we can fly it two or three times. Probably not going to last beyond that. Oh, were they wrong? So the ingenuity helicopter as part of the Mars Perseverance rover program, has just completed its 65th and 66th flight on the red planet. 66 times this little helicopter has taken to the air, landed safely, recharged with its own little solar panels, and is ready to fly again. Friends, that's an amazing story. This is a success story, right? The, uh, the most recent flights of the Ingenuity helicopter have been just a couple of short hops. They, they want this helicopter to be in a very specific position relative to the Perseverance rover, which is the easiest to help it uh, communicate with the rover and possibly get back on track if it gets lost for a little while because it turns out that the planet Mars is about to go out of view from the planet Earth for about two weeks. It's going out of view on the backside of the sun. This is what we call a conjunction. And so when Mars moves behind the sun relative to the Earth, we can't send radio signals up to Mars, which means we can't position or control our rovers or our helicopters. If the Ingenuity helicopter was not in the right spot to successfully recharge itself, or if it was not in the right spot to successfully communicate back with the home base, which is the Mars Perseverance rover, we might actually lose that helicopter on Mars. And since it's been so successful at surpassing its initial mission, we want to keep that little guy going, right? So the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and those folks at NASA performed a couple of little flights to make sure that the helicopter was sitting in the, in the Goldilocks just right position, that when we regain signal in a couple of weeks, we'll be able to communicate with the helicopter and be able to get it back on track for more future flights up on Mars, which is really cool. So uh, the the last two flights happened on November 2nd and November 3rd. On November 2nd, uh, Ingenuity only stayed aloft for about 48 seconds and only flew about 23 feet. The flight the next day on November 3rd was even shorter. It was only 20, 23 seconds and only flew about three feet. It almost flew perfectly vertically, uh, very little horizontal movement. But between those two flights, it is now sitting at the just right Goldilocks spot relative to the rover. 
to be able to recharge itself, communicate with the rover well, and be ready to go when Mars clears the sun as viewed from Earth, the conjunction ends, and we can start to fly and explore the surface of Mars again. Uh, of all of its accomplishments, of all of the wins uh, for this thing, maybe the best win, biggest win, I think, is just the name, uh, Ingenuity, for how successful this thing has been. What, a, what an absolute uh, marvel this thing has been on Mars. Yep, it, it really has. I mean, again, when people, I think, maybe in the, in the media or maybe social media, really like to point out and make fun of failures within the technological communities like NASA. It's like, oh, you took all our tax money and slammed a spacecraft into Mars. And very often we overlook or don't talk enough about the ridiculously impressive successes of the space agency and, and their various scientists and engineers. This is certainly one of those, right? We are flying an aerial vehicle in the atmosphere of an alien planet. That is really cool. And so over these 66 flights of Ingenuity up on Mars, it's traveled more than nine miles. Which I'm not really sure how many kilometers that is. Some some number of kilometers. No one knows. Anyway, so... No one knows. Some number of kilometers. <laughs> but, it, but it's also stayed aloft for 119 minutes. So it means it's flown for more than an hour and a half of cumulative time, which is just... Remarkable. Crazy, right? Yeah. It's almost two hours. So... So again, success story, the, the ingenuity almost felt like an afterthought. It kind of got added to the mission a little bit late. It was only supposed to be a proof of concept. And the fact that it is now the scout for the rover, it flies ahead of the rover and looks at the terrain and makes sure everything is safe. And then it comes back down for a safe landing, relays all that information back to JPL, and they can drive the rover itself more safely through the Martian terrain. You just don't get better than that. It's really, it's a, it's a great success story. Very cool outcome. So astronomers are trying to detect gravitational waves coming from supernova 1987A. SN1987A, I believe is the catalog number. Yes, it is. And so friends, you know, I know I've told a lot of stories today so far. I'm kind of in a chatty mood apparently on the podcast <laughs> today, but I will tell you this. I do have a little bit of a personal story that goes in conjunction with the supernova, supernova 1987A. Now, I had nothing to do with any of the science. However, there was a guy by the name of Ian Shelton, who was one of the co-discoverers. And Ian Shelton was basically at an observatory uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere, waiting for the sky to get dark and clouds to clear. And he was looking at some plates from, and pl I'm saying plates because this was in 87. We didn't have digital cameras, right? So they were looking at photographic plates. And he was looking at his photographic plate from the night before when he realized that he would actually see a star in the sky that was not on the plate from the night before of the very region of the sky that he was photographing. So he stepped out and said, wait a minute, I need to go look at this for my own eye again. And yes, he stepped outside and there it is, a bright and shining star up there in what's called the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a it's a companion galaxy to our Milky Way, but you can see it naked eye. So he stepped out and, and looked up at the sky and there's that bright light. So he walked quickly over to the neighboring observatory and asked one of the technicians there, hey, did you see this thing? And, and the guy there said, you know what? I actually did. I saw that too. There's something really unusual going on. So they picked up the phone and contacted the Bureau of International Telegrams at the uh, International Astronomical Union, 
which is a place where you report phenomenon such as this. And they got their names listed as the discoverers of Supernova 1987A. Now, none of that tells you why it's a personal connection to me. So here comes that punchline, which is this. Again, Ian Shelton, co-discoverer, was the brother of a guy that I knew named David Shelton, who was the department chair at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Physics Department when I was a grad student. So I knew Dr. David Shelton very well. He's the older and somewhat more studious and detail-oriented of the two brothers. He would occasionally describe his brother as maybe not moving through his degree program quite as quickly as everybody thought he should. But then the younger brother ends up being the discoverer of Supernova 1987A. So this was uh, this was good fun to talk to David about that and hear his comments on how his brother discovered this supernova, which is pretty cool. So there's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So in this giant supernova cloud that was created in 1987, there's a neutron star. And this neutron star, all neutron stars have some kind of irregularities. And as they spin around really, really fast, they should be test, they should be emitting gravitational waves. So a group of scientists led by Texas Tech University is actually trying to use LIGO data to find gravitational waves. Now you might know LIGO, that's the instrument that first detected gravitational waves back in 2015. So the Texas Tech scientists going back through the data of LIGO, trying to see if they can see little ripples in the fabric of space-time caused by the uneven rotation of a neutron star inside the supernova remnant from the supernova in 1987. So they have yet to find it, they haven't found it yet, but they are looking, and so it makes a really interesting story about that very famous supernova, the closest supernova to Earth since the invention of the telescope is Supernova 1987A. Uh, let's talk about Music Under the Dome. You guys just had the final uh, Music Under the Dome of 2023, but we're just kind of at a mid-season finale because really there's going to be more shows coming up next year. Yep, exactly. So uh, Music Under the Dome is going to return uh, in March. And so I would tell you this, folks, if you have not seen one of these concerts, but you really have been wanting to come, buy your tickets ahead of time because the tickets sell out fast. So that's one piece of advice. The other thing I would tell you is this, we likely will have a new planetarium projection system in place for the concerts happening in the spring. So that's just a little hat tip out there to say, hey, be paying attention. Follow us on Facebook here at Columbus State University's Coca-Cola Space Science Center because we're expecting some changes and some upgrades in our planetarium over the next few months. So there's there's a there's a, a, a an advanced notice of a headline that's going to be coming out shortly. Also, another headline, we just did a ribbon cutting ceremony for a brand new exhibit here at the Space Science Center and that new exhibit is now open and accessible to the public. It's called the Guzzle Vortex. Yeah, you might be wondering what that's kind of an interesting name, Guzzle Vortex. What is it? Well, it's an exhibit for the youngest kids in the family, and it's a place where they can let aliens guzzle up some food that then after that flies through a vortex of wind tunnels and shoots out in the air high aloft in the high atrium of the Coca-Cola Space Science Center, where the kids can retrieve these targets and put them back in the aliens again and again and again. And friends, I can just tell you, after watching the first wave of kids actually using this display, they're having a great time. There's also opportunities to learn about exoplanets 
and the flight of various machines, like the Ingenuity helicopter in the Martian atmosphere, uh, all of that content associated with this exhibit. But come down and check it out. Come down and check out Guzzle Vortex, Music Under the Dome, and all the other great artifacts and programs we have here at Columbus State University's Coca-Cola Space Science Center. And the website to learn more about what you guys do and those uh, upcoming showtimes for Music Under the Dome. Yep, you can follow us at our website. The web address is www.ccssc.org, charlie, charlie, sam, sam, charlie.org. And we thank you again for listening, and we'll do it again next week. Overhead Door Company of Columbus has all of your garage door needs covered, residential and commercial, service and repairs. If you need a new garage door or you're just looking to upgrade or repair your current door, Overhead Door Company of Columbus has you covered. Plus, they've got your emergency repairs or service covered as well. 706-358-4500, 706-358-4500, odccolumbus.com.